listening to the Caffeinated Thoughts Podcast. Hi, this is Shane Vanderhart. Welcome back to another episode. For this episode, I spoke with Rick Stewart. He's the Libertarian Party nominee in Iowa's U.S. Senate race. Uh, he has uh, been a law enforcement officer. Uh, he's learned carpentry, diesel mechanics, welding, air conditioning, and he finally started her, an herb and spice company, Frontier Cooperative Herbs, uh, which he retired from. And today it's a $200 million company with 300 employees. Um, this is not his first time running for office. He ran in 2014, as not as the Libertarian Party nominee, uh, but as an independent. He rode his bicycle 3,000 miles to every Iowa county. And he had interviews with around 200 Iowa newspapers. He then revisited all 99 counties with a colorful campaign trailer and did many town halls in each of them. Uh, he earned, after doing all that, 2.3% of the vote, which is actually pretty pretty decent for an independent candidate in Iowa. Um, he, he placed third out of six candidates. In 2016, he ran as a libertarian in the Lynch County Sheriff's race, coming in second, but there wasn't a Republican, so it was just a, a head-to-head matchup against the Democratic candidate. In 2018, he was a libertarian candidate for Secretary of Agriculture, and he um, came in, again, third, receiving 38,965 votes, which is 3%, again, which is is uh, pretty significant for a third party, so... Um, in the gubernatorial or presidential race, uh, a party, as long as they hit the 2% mark, they can actually be considered a major party, and then they, then Iowa would then had, have a primary for them, and it's just an easier process to, for uh, organizations recognized as a major party to, to get ballot access. Um, so uh, the Secretary of, Secretary of Agriculture race does not count for that. It would be It's only the gubernatorial as well as the presidential race. But anyway, he you know he he's got an interesting uh, political political career as a libertarian and as an independent. Um, he and I talked about a variety of issues. We don't always agree on some of these issues, but I thought was, he has he brings an important uh, an interesting uh, perspective to uh, criminal justice reform. We talked about uh, COVID nineteen, some of his ideas for that. We talked about uh, the abortion issue, religious liberty. Uh, as well as immigration. I don't know if I'm missing anything. It was a lengthy conversation. Uh, without further ado, here it is. Hey, Rick, welcome to the Caffeinated Thoughts Podcast. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity to uh, speak to your viewers. Listeners. Yeah, not a problem. Yeah, we don't do video, which our, which our listeners, I'm sure, are grateful for, because I have a face for radio, so... Um, it's probably better that they can hear my voice and not see my face. So now, now, now you, you it'd probably be beneficial if you had video. I don't, I don't know. We haven't met in person. So, uh, but for me, <laughs> I'm glad it's audio. So Rick, you're running for Senate in, in, as a libertarian in Iowa's U.S. Senate race. And a question I ask every candidate, regardless whether they're running for uh, city council or for president is, why why subject yourself to this? Why are you running? Well, that's a good question because it's not the easiest thing to do in the world, uh, especially uh, this uh, late in the campaign and only a few days left before the election. Uh, you know, I am running around all over Iowa, uh, not getting enough sleep, not eating enough uh, good food and drinking too much coffee. Uh, and it's, uh, it's quite a strain on the 
on the human body and the human mind to run for office in Iowa. Uh, but the reason I'm running basically is, um, you know, uh, I, I was apolitical for the major part of my life. Uh, you know, I knew what was going on, but I didn't get involved. Uh, but, but recently, and I stretch back to about 2012, mm-hmm. uh, I have just, I have become convinced that our politicians have essentially taken us uh, in an anti-democratic direction, uh, that they are more interested in fighting with each other than they are in actually finding solutions to common problems. Uh, you know, I think all of us sort of know that. If you've been looking at the political ads in uh, Iowa, uh, I, don't, I don't really recall any that had positive things to say. Uh, uh, mostly it's just telling, telling me why I should be afraid of the other guy. Mm. And, um, uh, you know what, I, I think uh, we might have to terminate this. Uh, hold on just a minute. Okay. No, we're okay. Okay. I, it's her. I, 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 like I, was, yeah. I was a little worried. Terminate? What are you talking about? No, no. No, no, no. I, I, I thought that perhaps there was a uh, police officer behind me, but I think it's just a bouncing road. Ah, uh, okay. The headlights uh, bounce around, so we're okay. Ah, it's okay, um, Rick. Put him on the podcast. We can... <laughs> Yeah, really. Um, so back, back to why I'm running. Uh, you know, I, I discovered that... Uh, even though they appear to be uh, sort of uh, in possession of greater powers than uh, ourselves, politicians are pretty much just ordinary people uh, who uh, are put in the position that uh, uh, in order to get into office, they have to join a party, uh, and then they have to do everything that the party tells them to do because the party itself is uh, not really interested in anything other than winning the next election. Uh, and they're not really interested in, uh, uh, you know, uh, talking to each other anymore. Uh, they're not interested in uh, uh, voting uh, uh, independently anymore. They all have to vote as a block. Uh, and, you know, I have a 24-year history uh, of business. I, I, I operated a, a private business. I was lucky enough to start one that did pretty well. Mm-hmm. And that's just not the way I think. I don't, I don't think about you know, hammering my uh, management team into agreeing with me uh, and then firing them if they don't. What I think about is um, how do we build a consensus? Uh, because we have problems, right? Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it always just pops up where, uh, I mean, every day there's something new, and uh, usually it's bad news. Nobody brings you good news. And we have to figure out how to, how to respond to it, and we have to figure out how to respond to it as a company not as an individual, but as a, as a company that's united to solve a problem. And the way you do that is you, you build consensus. Uh, consensus is when everybody has, has been heard, everybody has listened, and everybody agrees that uh, we've come up with the best possible solution, uh, basically, uh, you know, in that situation. Mm-hmm. And then we have the whole company uh, moves forward and, and solves the problem. Okay. That's, that's like the opposite of what Congress is doing today. They're, okay. They're, they're not looking for consensus. Now, you, this particular, you would just be one of 100 pe- people if you won. How, how would you go about building consensus? Well, the first thing you do is you talk. Uh, you know, and then the, the second thing you do is you listen. And there's 99 other senators, and I can guarantee you 
that on day one, when I go to Washington, uh, every one of those 99 senators is going to be invited to sit down, uh, just, just them and me, uh, two people at a table to become friends. Uh, that doesn't mean we're going to uh, sit down and, and agree all, automatically with everything, but we're going to be friends because both of us have the same goal in mind. We want to make America uh, a better place for 330 million Americans. Uh, and now after we become friends, then we can start talking about how to do it. And obviously, we're going to have different ideas about how to do it, but each of us is going to have the opportunity to try and persuade, not force, but persuade the other person that our ideas are, are better than their ideas and learn enough to see that, oh, I, I understand now where, you know, where you're coming from. And uh, as much as I still, uh, you know, I, I like my ideas, who doesn't like their own ideas? Right. Uh, you know, I might have to change my mind. I might have to say, you know, you might be right. Uh, and if you build the kind of relationship that, of trust that that guy or that woman knows that when they talk to me, I am not trying to destroy them. Mm -hmm. I am trying to, to find the areas of agreement so that we can move forward. And I have no doubt whatsoever that we can, we can work that way. You know, I doubt that we'll ever get too many votes that are 100 to zero, uh, but I think we can get to the point where we're having a large majority, and I don't mean uh, just one, one side. I mean, you know, 75, 80 yeah. percent, they can, they can say, we're going to do this because it's good for America. And we're okay. going to take a little bit of political heat, but we're going to work for America. We're not going to work for our party anymore. That's a partisan uh, approach that just is, it's been proven to fail. We see it every day. We need to get past that. But when you don't trust each other, you can't get there. And every senator in Washington will trust me not to agree with them, but to care about their point of view and to care about the issues, not about the politics. Okay, so let's let's uh, let's talk about some issues here uh, that we've not really seen any traction on. I mean, just recently, you know, we we've had um, all these protests and you know and, and some riots um, based off of uh, um, uh, some some police shootings, and a lot of us are talking about police reform. Uh, we saw a bill; the Republicans in the Senate uh, try to put forward a bill, but it was blocked by Senate Democrats. In your mind, where where could we find some common ground on police reform? Well, you know, and, police and in let, America are not. And I just also want to exp America are, uh, just let me just interject real quickly. Let me expand that also oh, to criminal justice reform as well, so we could talk about both. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, policing in America is not done at the federal level, and it's for the most part not done at the state level. I forget the number, but I think there are 14,000 police jurisdictions in America because That's it's done at a local level. That sounds so about you right. Can't reform four, yeah, you can't reform 14,000 jurisdictions. Uh, you know, the cities are going to have to take on that job themselves. But here's what you can do that will have the greatest impact on that entire problem. Uh, and just to refresh your memory, you know, my first career was in law enforcement. I only uh, was in the uh, police officer for two years uh, before I moved on. But, uh, you know, I have seen that side uh, of the fence. So the, the thing that has happened in the last 50 years that has alienated police departments from the citizens they are supposed to serve and protect is the drug war. 
the drug war is, is a monumental error. It was a, a strategic error uh, at the beginning, and it's a, a, an error which we have carried with us ever since President Nixon declared the drug war. But he, his intention when he declared the drug war was to take care of the hippies and the blacks. And he was worried about re-election. The hippies were causing the problems. The blacks were causing the problems. He was going to take care of both of those problems by starting a drug war and demonizing the people who were using drugs and demonizing the drugs themselves. And, and 50 years later, we live in a world that is so completely imaginary and so completely based on non-facts, based on non-rationality, that a lot of people, they can't see what an eroding effect it has had. But it really drove a wedge between the, the law enforcement and the plea and the citizens for the simple reason that 10% of the people in America use illegal recreational drugs. It, it took 10% of the population, and, and don't forget their, their relatives that don't use the, the illegal recreational drugs. So we can probably put that up to 15 or 20% of the population, which became, became frightened of the police and the police presence. And I, I like to put it this way. You know, the, the hippies, who were mostly white, they cut off their hair and they, they traded their bell bottoms in for a suit, and they got a job and they became middle class. They kept on using illegal recreational drugs, but it was out of sight, out of mind. Okay, let me... The let me blacks in America... Let, let me interject sure, here, because uh, a little pushback. First of all, um, one in ten Americans using illicit substance seems little high to me. I, I, I can't say I've seen surveys. Where can you point our listeners to where you get your numbers from? Well, those are the ones published by the United States government. They do uh, a lot of different surveys uh, okay. every year. Of, oh, yeah. Uh, but uh, and what, and their definition of uh, 10% is that they have used an illegal recreational drug within the last year. Okay? Okay. They also do within the last month. Uh, but these are just uh, published figures that the government uh, hands out every year when they do it. But so it's be like a CDC? We can uh, find I'm it. not sure whether the, it's the CDC that actually does these. Uh, or I, I, I don't remember exactly who they are. But, yeah, it's like the CDC or the, you know, the uh, uh, Bureau of the Prisons. or the. I, I'm not exactly sure which government agency. But there, there are quite a few uh, data sources for that. And I'm just taking, I, I only take the statistics uh, from the government because I, I think that they probably have more ability to uh, you know, spend money to, to generate these statistics than anyone else does. Okay. Uh, that's a pretty good guess. In Iowa, it's not that high. Uh, the last I looked, it was 8% in Iowa. But okay. that's pretty close to 10. Okay. And, you know, there's places where it's higher. Yeah. Like I mean, Colorado. <laughs> well, right now, yeah. I mean, uh, marijuana is legal in Colorado, but it's not legal in the United States. So. Right. Tell me how that works. Um, but uh, but as a general rule, that, that number has been very steady for a long time. Okay. Uh, obviously, if you go way back, then, you know, I mean, the illegal drug that uh, most Americans used in, in the early part of the 20th century was alcohol. Right. Because it was prohibited. Okay. Right. Uh, the prohibition of alcohol is, is no different than the prohibition of drugs. Uh, you know, they, they, they call it... Economists call it an infinite tax. It's so high you can't pay it. And, and so uh, the only way you can uh, enjoy your recreational substances is if you break the law. And, of course, that makes you a criminal. But what happened was uh, we, we started arresting basically poor people. As a former law enforcement official, I, I, I'll just say, 
psychology uh, of human behavior makes it easier. And, and, and the government in Washington uh, gave a, put a lot of pressure on, on law enforcement across the United States to start arresting more and more and more people. Uh, and uh, the laws were passed, which, which caused the, 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 the consequences to be greater and greater. We had minimum, minimum sentences, and we started uh, not letting judges use any discretion. Uh, but for the most part, those things were applied against the black population, not against the white population. This, this black people don't use any more drugs in America than white people do. It's 10% right. for black, it's 10%, yeah, it's 10% for white, 10% for brown. The only ethnic group in America that doesn't use it at that rate are the Asians. Uh, you know, they're like only 5 or 6%. <laughs> okay. So, but what, 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 what happens is that all those people uh, become alienated from the police and, and they quit cooperating with the police, uh, and they are no longer, uh, you know, uh, basically uh, turning in the people uh, that are committing other kinds of crimes because they themselves are a criminal, and they don't want the police to show up at their house and search it and get caught and go to prison. There's this huge alienation. And it's just getting a little bit worse every year because it continues and it continues. There's a fantastic book that I, I highly recommend everybody read, black, white, green, I don't care. It's called uh, The New Jim Crow uh, by Michelle Alexander. And it, it just documents page after page after page of how the, the brunt of the drug war was, was uh, it landed on, on, on black people. It, it didn't land on white people. So right. if you can imagine three, three generations of, of uh, fathers, mostly, who were uh, ripped away from their families and their parents and their children and their jobs and their, their education, and they were thrown in prison. Uh, at, a, at quite a high cost, by the way, forty thousand dollars a year just to put somebody in prison. Uh, you know, and then like you know, their children were left behind, and they were raised by single mothers. And then uh, those children grew up, and, and then they were thrown in prison. And you got three generations of that. There's no wonder that black people in America are angry, and even if they can't articulate it the way I'm articulating it, uh, that's what's really happened, and that just needs to end. You know, I can't end racism in America, but I know I can make a giant step in that direction if we just end the drug war. And that will recreate the, the law enforcement agencies all across America because they will no longer be arresting people and, and prosecuting people for basically their victimless crime. Okay. Right? I mean, yeah. I don't care what... Now, I think Democrats are in growing numbers would resonate with that, and... There are some Republicans, I think, that are open to that, but I, you know, I, I, I'm hearing a whole lot of, um, you know, I'm probably halfway toward you. I'm not sure about ending, you know, legalizing everything, but I'm certainly uh, open to decriminalizing uh, at least possession anyway. Uh, but I, I've had, I've had law enforcement officers tell me, hey, um, you know, it's not like we just arrest drug. Uh, they're not only arrested on drug charges; they're they're criminals in other ways too. How do you respond to that? Well, yeah, many. Well, yeah, many of them are. Uh, to me, a criminal is somebody. Uh, it has to be a victim somewhere. So, if I uh, hurt you or if I steal your stuff, you're the victim. And in that case, we should uh, we should. Well, we, I want law enforcement to take care of that problem. I'm not I'm not saying give everybody a free pass. Right. I'm just saying if there's no no victim, no crime, uh, and then no jail time. So, uh, yeah, uh, you, you really have to sift through the statistics. But roughly mm -hmm. speaking, uh, you know, we, think about this. When you criminalize drugs, 
that every everybody that uses them is a criminal and everybody that sells them is a criminal. Uh, so that's a huge population. And if you're running a criminal organization, uh, violence becomes one of the arrows uh, in your quiver. Uh, because you can't, you know, if I, let's just say I'm a drug dealer and I, I sell drugs to somebody and then they come back and they rip me off and steal my money, who am I going to go to? Am I going to go to the police and say, hey, you know, Joe just stole all my drug money. I can't do that. I have to use guns. That's why you see all the violence in, uh, in uh, especially foreign countries like Mexico right now. Uh, it's the cartels that are running criminal organizations. They can't ask the police or the army or the government to step in and solve, uh, settle their disputes. I mean, this is just, we already saw it once. Al Capone is a, a great illustration of what happens when you criminalize something. Uh, then criminals take over the production. And criminals have to use violence. So you'll have, a, you'll have a, a significant reduction in violence as soon as you uh, uh, end the drug war. Uh, but I, I'm not, I'm not pro-violence, and I'm not pro uh, just letting, giving people free passes because they don't want to go to prison. Right. But unless there's a, unless there's a victim, uh, we, yeah. we need to quit this whole mentality well, of uh, uh, locking uh, them up and throwing away the keys. And that's that was my argument too with with um, uh, with this particular person. It's like, well, if they're yeah, okay. If they stole some money to get money to buy drugs, they committed a crime. Arrest them for that. Um, yep. Yeah. So I, I mean, yeah. Obviously, if they're breaking the law to, to in order to to keep their habit going, that then yes, they're criminal. Um, okay. Moving along. COVID nineteen. We're seeing. What What are your thoughts on on governmental approach, um, on the lockdowns, on federal funding? toward this problem? Where do you think some common ground could lie? Well, uh, I, going back to the beginning, I was, I wish that all of the politicians, uh, both sides, uh, would have just kept their mouths shut and, and quit pretending like they were experts. Uh, what, what, I can't believe that we took a virus, which is a non-human species, and we turned it into a political football. Uh, the, here's the problem. It's a brand new disease. That means nobody knows anything. The epidemiologists didn't know very much about it. The economists didn't know much about it. And certainly the politicians didn't know anything about it, but they pretended like they did. And that's where I would have uh, acted completely differently. I would have, I would have tried to uh, pull the American people together. Uh, and uh, when there's a, a difference of opinion, again, uh, we need to understand that, that what, we, what we have to arrive at is a consensus. And uh, we, can't, we can't pretend like we know things that we don't know. Uh, we, we have to admit, we don't know. Those are, those are hard words for anybody to say. It's really hard for a politician to say. Uh, right. But that's the words that should have been said. Uh, and then, then we can say, you know, there's 330 million Americans. Here's what we know. Mostly we don't know. But we do know this. There's a brand new virus, and it could be deadly, and it could be devastating. Now let's figure out how all of us are going to behave not with a law or with a mandate, nothing coming from the government, but with information. Because, you know, if, if I'm a, I don't know, just a farmer in rural Iowa, uh, you know, I, it, my story is different than if I'm living in an apartment building in Des Moines. Uh, right. I am not exposed to as many people. Uh, you know, I can limit my uh, exposure pretty easily. I don't have to wear a mask. I can just uh, mostly stay home and you know, go shopping once a, every two weeks or something and uh, be, very, be real careful then. And I think that Americans would have rallied around voluntary uh, action 
because Americans aren't stupid. You know, I mean, we might we, we, we might be uh, we might act that way sometimes when we're acting politically. But if we just if we just address this problem as a public health problem, and which requires the voluntary cooperation of, of 330 million Americans, you know, we're not going to get 330 million Americans uh, to cooperate. We know that. But we could probably get 80 or 90 percent of them uh, to, to, to buy into the fact that we're all in it together. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big mess. Uh, we didn't want this. We didn't ask for it. Uh, it wasn't actually caused by politics. The virus, you know, it, it mutated on its own with no help from anybody. Uh, and, and, and then I think what we have is we have uh, a, a country that was united, not every single person, but almost all of us. And we would be, we would be doing what, what it would take to eliminate this, and we'd be doing it voluntarily, uh, and it would be a, a real group effort. Uh, where instead of, uh, like, you know, I look, I walk into a store, I, I look around, and I go, oh, you know, five people with masks, they're Republicans, or mm. Democrats. No, right. Democrats, yeah, that's like, oh, those guys aren't wearing masks, they must be Republicans. That's one of the most ridiculous things I've ever seen, but it's true. Uh, everybody knows that, you know, you look at somebody and you go, oh, I can tell who they are by whether they're wearing masks. Yeah. Uh, we aren't thinking collectively uh, that it's everybody's problem and that, you know, uh, we're all individuals. But uh, we can we can we can do the best we can. It's never going to be perfect. We're not going to save every single life, uh, but we can all be cautious. We can all be careful. We can all be loving, really. Uh, I, you know, I, just approached it that way. I think we would have handled it a lot better. It's a balancing act between uh, you know health and, and economics. And you know, if you kill people uh, by uh, you know shutting down their livelihoods, uh, it's really they don't it doesn't get counted as a COVID death, but it's still a dead person. Uh, you kill people because they're afraid to go to the doctor and then they don't uh, find out that they have cancer and then they die. You know, that's not counted as a COVID death, but it is a death. Uh, and it, it, we just needed, you know, okay, here, here's another one I, thing I want to point out is, you know, if I was in charge, I'm just going to put myself in the seat of either Kim Reynolds or Donald Trump. Uh, when, I, when I had a press conference, I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have made it a press conference. I would have made it an all-day event. And I would have had, uh, you know, a dozen epidemiologists and a dozen economists, and I would have sat there listening, and I would have done it all day long, because that's what's really needed. Is Americans need to understand we don't know, but we're going to work together, and we're going to work our way through. We're going to survive, and we're going to thrive because all of us are working together. Okay, um, I want to hit upon some other issues. I know my listeners care about abortion. What's your stance on that? And I mean, it seems like there's there seems to be absolutely no common ground here on that issue. Well, right now, I don't think there's common ground, but I also think that's because uh, the, the parties have decided that they don't want common ground. I, I believe that life begins at uh, conception. I, I just base that on science. I don't base it on any uh, you know supernatural knowledge or anything. But it seems to me pretty clear that life begins at conception, and uh, it is one of the jobs of government to protect human life. Uh, that's why we, uh, we, we arrest murderers and we, we put them in prison. Uh, so uh, the problem, of course, you have is that you have two lives in, in, for about nine months. And the question becomes, how do I protect the life of both of those lives? And, and there's, there's no simple answer to that, uh, but I do have suggestions. Uh, number one, the, the number one thing you could do to reduce the total number of abortions in America uh, doesn't involve any law whatsoever, but it does involve... Uh, a gigantic effort to 
create a contraceptive for men, one that will be effective uh, that they can take before uh, they have uh, sexual intercourse and the risk conception. I don't know why we haven't done this. We should put a billion-dollar prize out there for a safe, effective contraceptive for men. I think you will cut the number of abortions in America down by about 75%. Right now, we all know that women are the ones that have to to protect themselves from pregnancy. Uh, Men are basically not particularly responsible. In the the heat of the moment, they, they don't like to wear condoms, and that's the only tool that they have other than abstinence. Uh, you know, I like abstinence. It's kept me from having any children for quite a while. But, uh, you know, that, it's just unrealistic to, to say this is the, the, the thing that you have to do. Uh, and if you don't, uh, you know, I don't know, you're breaking the law or something. But if you give men contraception, I think the, the, most men are going to take it if they don't want their, their uh, partner to get pregnant. So there you go. That's 75% of the problem solved with no law because you've made something available that will just dramatically reduce the number of unwanted pregnancies. But you're still going to have 25% of them left, and, and I, I, you know, I need to deal with that, too. Uh, my, my problem with the whole abortion question is that I just don't trust government. I, I don't trust government to have a realistic stance on that because government is political and politics is not rational. Politics is about, uh, you know, my, my team gets more players than your team, so then we're going to beat you up. So uh, I would be in favor of this, and I'll, I'll try to make this a little shorter. But uh, I think that uh, we should get we should get government out of it. We should get the Supreme Court out of it. We should get Congress out of it. We should get state government out of it. We should get the state Supreme Courts out of it. Uh, and we should just say government doesn't have anything at all to say about abortion. Nothing. Uh, that uh, leaves us with a, a playing field where people who who want to live in a world where there uh, are no abortions don't have any place to go. Uh, but I am going to say that if, at the smaller level, at the municipal level, in a municipality that has 50,000 people or less, it's okay for the government of that municipality to say there are abortion is not allowed in this municipality. And that gives a refuge to the, place, to the, to the people who, who want to live in an abortion-free society. They will have a place where they can go to, they can live. And I don't think there's only going to be one of them in America. I think there's going to be a lot of them. But they can live in a place where abortion is not, is not legal. Uh, but I don't think that the size of a city that's any larger than that, uh, I, I think they should just keep out of it. Government is, is just not capable of making those kinds of decisions. Uh, individual people in small groups, small towns, small municipalities, they're the ones that have to make those decisions, uh, and they should be allowed to, but not, not larger government units. Okay. I want to move on here. I don't know if that makes yeah, I don't know if that made sense, but basically, uh, get government out of it, but allow small government yeah, basi- to make it to Yeah, basically, basically knock it down to the local level, and the, sm- the smaller smaller the yeah. better, in a nutshell. Yeah. Okay. Um, another, uh, and I see libertarians also at, at who who struggle with this. You have competing liberty interests with LGBTQ people and and religious liberty. How should that? How should those two things coexist? Well, can you explain why they, why there's a competition there? Because uh, I don't quite understand uh, the, the essence of your question. Okay, well, I'll give you an example. Um, why should? Well, you look at a lot of anti-discrimination laws, and and um, Masterpiece Cake Shop uh, 
ruling in the Supreme Court, I think, shed a little bit of light on this. But I think we're going to continue to see some of this happen. But uh, you have you have a Christian uh, a case of Jack Phillips. Anyway, you had a a, a case of of a, a Christian uh, baker uh, uh, who who made cakes, who uh, decorated cakes, and had actually had um, LGBTQ clientele. But said no when it came to him providing a a um, customized uh, wedding cake for a same sex wedding ceremony, um, and that well, I there. Think, yeah, I, I I think that's pretty clear cut. It's a private business, and he has the right to do whatever he wants as long as he doesn't hurt anybody else. Uh, so yeah, he has the right not to make a cake and. Uh, I, I think everybody has the right uh, to run their private business and accept the customers that they would like to serve and, and just, just to simply say, no, I, I, I do not wish to do that. I do not wish to serve you as a customer. is is pretty fundamental to the whole idea of a private business. Okay. Okay. Um, I want to move on because uh, we're, we're about out of time because I told you about a half hour. We're, we're going to probably go a little bit over that. Uh, immigration. But I want to hear your thoughts on immigration. Well, the United States was a country that's uh, 100% founded by immigrants, uh, and that's one of the things that has made us strong through the years. All the places that these immigrants came from, basically they came from countries that uh, were uh, you know, withholding individual liberty and freedom. These people uh, didn't like that, and so they moved. They moved to America. Uh, I'm in favor of an immigration policy which understands that immigration is the lifeblood of America. I would like every uh, smart, talented, hardworking, entrepreneurial person in the world to leave their country and move to our country because I think this is the greatest country in the world. Now, we can't take more than, I don't know, some relatively small number, three or four or five million people a year. Uh, That's something we can debate, right, exactly what the number should be. But I'm just going to say three million. We should auction off the right to come to the United States and get a, and buy a, a permanent green card, which will allow you to work for the rest of your life legally in America and pay our taxes, just like every other American pays our taxes. It's an individual right. Well, it, or, you, know, you buy it. It's not a right. But you buy you, you win the auction, you pay your money, and you come to America, and uh, you know, nobody can take that away from you, just like they can't take my uh, right to work away from me. Uh, and uh, you, you, can't, you can bring your wife or your husband but they can't work. They, they, they're tourists. They, they, they can come in for a year, you know, bring your own money. Uh, uh, but, uh, you know, we'll be glad to have you here uh, spending your money. And you go back to your own country once a year for a couple days just to sort of keep everybody on the up and up. Uh, but you can't work. Uh, if we auctioned off those rights, I estimate that we'd be probably selling those rights for $50,000 each. Because fifty thousand dollars is a pretty good deal if you can work for the rest of your life in America legally. Uh, that's fifty billion dollars we would collect uh, every year from people coming in, and we really wouldn't have to have uh, strict border controls anymore. You know, criminals really. America is sort of a bad place to come if you're a criminal because you know we have a better uh, law enforcement uh, uh, officials than, than in the country that they're, they're leaving. Uh, of course, we're going to screen people. You can't just ever, we're not going to open our doors to everybody that uh, just wants to walk in. We're going to screen you for, you know, the, the ordinary things, criminality, disease. Uh, and, you know, you can't come here if you're contagious and you can't come here if you're a criminal. 
but if you just want to come in and not work and enjoy America, great. Come on. We love tourists. You know, stay in our hotels, uh, spend meals, go to Disneyland, go skiing, spend your money. That's fantastic. But if you want to work, you're going to have to win the auction. And the only way you're going to win the auction is if you bid for it. Uh, and if, if, if too many people want to come in, we'll, we'll just raise the price. You know, I mean, it's like it's back to supply and demand. Uh, if we raise the price, there's going to be fewer people. So we'll be able to totally control uh, the number of people that uh, get in by the auction process. Uh, and uh, I think we can pretty much end this whole idea that foreigners are somehow or another uh, polluting America. Uh, we just won't let in too many, uh, but we'll certainly let them in. I want, like I said, I want every bright person in the world to come to America and start a business and, and uh, try to get rich like the rest of us, uh, live honestly, live according to the law, pay their taxes, don't go on welfare, don't expect a free handout, be a real American. Uh, you know, if you want to be a citizen, do the regular citizen thing. But come here and work. Uh, it's a great place to work. It's a wonderful country. Uh, you got to pay for the privilege. So, okay, so I'm just thinking of some pushback here. Um, well, that sounds like that sounds like great if you're someone of means and can afford that. But so we're basically shutting America's doors to those who are in poverty? Uh, no, not at all, because uh, say you're an employer, right? You can just lend the money to somebody that wants to take your job. Uh, they, you can take it out of their paycheck over an extended period of time. Uh, you hold the green card in your hand, so they can't, they, you know, it's not, a, it's a little bit like indentured servitude, except they're free to leave, they just have to, they don't have a green card, right? Uh, I, I, if I'm going to lend one of my future employees $50,000, I'm going to hold the green card in my hand, and, and they're going to pay it off. Or groups of people uh, can band together, which they already do, uh, and they can uh, uh, use their money that they raise uh, because they're already here working legally and they can sponsor uh, people that they want to bring to the United States. Charitable organizations can uh, decide that they're going to pay, or they're going to get into the auction, and they're going to buy, uh, uh, you know, buy green cards, and they're going to give them to the people that they think need to come to the United States. Uh, yeah, there's lots of ways to finance it. Uh, it besides, if you think about it, you know, I mean, these, a lot of people, especially from Central America and Mexico, uh, they're paying $10,000 cash already, and they don't even get a, a, a money-back guarantee. So $50,000, and there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it, and it's, it's going to last the rest of my life. I'll never be thrown out. I'll never be thrown in jail. I'll never be deported. That's, a, that's a, actually a pretty good deal. Okay. Uh, so, uh, I, and I, I guess I'm still not quite understanding how this would solve illegal immigration. Well, who's going to come here illegally, and what are they going to do? I mean, they're not going to get a job. They don't have a green card. And employers well, are going to have to check those. Okay, uh, yeah, um, they're supposed to do that already, but they don't. So, well, okay, I, I will I will throw this in because you asked a great question. Uh, if you're if you're employing somebody uh, and uh, you didn't check to see whether or not they had a legal green card, and it's discovered that you're doing that, then you have to pay for the green card, the employer. Okay, all right. Well, hey. I think the, the dynamics are very powerful there because, uh, you know, two people go, come to an employer and one of them uh, gets in without a green card. Uh, well, the other one turns them in and the employer suddenly is $50,000 out of pocket. So employers are not going to be caught that way. The employers are going to check the green cards. Okay. I, we're, we're about out of time because we're oh, actually we're over time. But I just want to give you one final word 
give us your best 30-second elevator speech as well as where we can learn more about your candidacy. Well, uh, the easiest way to do it is Google me. My name is Rick Stewart. Uh, Google Rick Stewart, Iowa, and you will find all kinds of third-party information about me. You won't have to rely on my website. But I do have a website, uh, rickstewart.com. It's pretty easy to get to. Uh, you can certainly start to learn the basics there. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I invite every Iowan to, to do their homework on me because I, my, my whole life is uh, an open book. I, I've been very transparent. Uh, lots of different people have written lots of different things about me. So why don't you check out what the, you know, it's a little bit like Amazon. What do the reviewers say about Rick Stewart? Uh, and if you like it, vote for me. And if you don't like it, vote for somebody else. All right. Well, hey, thank you so much for your time and best wishes. Well, Shane, I totally appreciate it. I'm glad we connected. Uh, it's delightful to get uh, be in a position to talk to your listeners. And uh, I wish you the best of luck. And, uh, again, thank you very much uh, for letting me talk. You're very welcome. All right. Take care. Take care, Shane. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. concludes today's episode of the caffeinated thoughts podcast thank you so much for listening if you happen to be listening to this podcast somewhere other than on our website please be sure to check out caffeinatedthoughts.com again that's caffeinatedthoughts.com or you could just google caffeinated thoughts and it'll show up at the top of your search screen also be sure to like us on facebook follow us on twitter sign up for our emails that way you don't miss a single update also, I encourage you, I think it's it's more convenient for you, better for us if you subscribe to our podcast. We're on Apple Podcasts. If you're on out if you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, please uh give us a five-star rating. Uh we, we need those. If you don't like our podcast, forget I said anything about that. Uh we're also on Google Podcasts, we're on Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, Podbean, Blueberry. Hopefully soon, Amazon Podcasts. I don't think I, I, I've been I've been talking that up for the past few episodes. Actually, I don't think they've launched that yet. Uh, looking into it a little bit more, but hopefully we'll be on that soon once they launch. Um, that would be that would be great. So, if there is an application uh, that you use that we're not on, uh, please drop me a line at Shane at CaffeinatedThoughts.com. Uh, I'd love to hear about it. See what we could do to possibly make that happen. Until next time, my friends, this is Shane Vanderhart. Have a great rest of the week. Take care.